0: Amen. City Church, good morning. Grab your Bible and meet me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Today we're going to jump into the deep end and we're going to talk about some tough stuff, sex and sexuality. And the reason why we're going to do that is because if there's any idol who has laid claim to our culture, it is the idol of sex more than anyone. Just so you know, Americans spend about $12 billion a year on pornography. And if I can put that into perspective, we spend about $10 billion a year on foreign aid. And men, obviously, you know, most, most of that is, is men, but we're, society's changing, where ladies are getting into this too. So I want to tell you that, that statistically speaking, 90% of porn stars are abused. So the next time you turn that on, just recognize that you're looking at somebody who probably got into the industry because they were sexually abused by their uncle or their dad. Let me give you some more shocking stats as we jump into this. The average person lost their virginity at the age of 16, and 94% of all sex on TV happens outside of marriage. Matter of fact, one study examined a sample of a week's worth of programming on ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, WB, PBS, Lifetime, TNN, USA, and HBO to see what sexual content looked like. And here's how they define sexual content. They said sexual content was anything from discussing discussions on sex to kissing to sex itself. Here's what they found. A study said that 70% of all shows included some sexual content, and the average show had five sex scenes per hour. If you didn't know this, you were inundated with sex. Y'all, I can't even go on social media anymore. If I try to search something on Instagram, it's like it's this perfectly curated document sitting right there with everything that I love, except it has somebody wearing no clothes. Oh, you like running. Great. Here's some people running with little to no clothes on. Oh, you like golf? Great. Here's what we got. We got some people playing golf, but they have little to no clothes on. You like football, which is weird. Here's some people playing. I mean, literally everything in there is perfectly designed to hit me at every single point. And I don't even follow anybody on Instagram. You can go look at it. I follow our church, like two missionaries and my wife. And somehow I've, I've been put into this queue to where this is all that I ever see. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, sex is everywhere and it's starting to kill us. Why do I say that? Because it's desensitizing us to the sacredness of sex and I'm telling you that it has monumental consequences. Here's why, here's why. God's view of sex and sexuality is rooted in the authority of God in the creation order. Let me explain. When God created Adam and Eve, he made them male and female. Both uniquely different from one another, both complementing one another, and both in the image of God. This is so important because men and women are both made in the image of God. Both have unique attributes that are necessary to see the full and complete picture of God. And when we take away, redefine, or do anything to our sexuality, we take away and redefine who God is. Men and women are different, and that is by design. We need men to act like men and women to act like women. Now, here's what I need you to understand is the way that our culture defines what that should look like might be wrong. But we also understand that there are just certain things that that are inherent in us, and we need to complement one another in those things. If both of us were the same, one of us would be unnecessary. By the way, the same thing is true in marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It is not a 21st century construct and it's not a first century construct. If you actually go back, Jesus was asked about marriage and when Jesus was asked about it, he took it back to the creation order. Jesus is saying that God designed marriage and because God designed marriage, it is sacred and it cannot be redefined. It doesn't really matter what the US government says or anybody else. Because God is a God of order, not disorder and chaos. All of the confusion over sex, sexuality, gender, and identity is really a struggle to dethrone God and his authority over our lives. That's why Paul would even go so far in Romans 1 to say that all the things that we're dealing with are because we have rejected God. And at some point, God has decided to give us over to the things that we actually desired. The confusion over sexual identity has its roots in the biblical authority and believing that God's design is not good enough. You know, and just a side note, all of the stats from a secular perspective on any of this stuff actually goes in the way of saying when a mom and a dad are present in the home, the entire home gets better and all of society gets better. What you have to understand is society flourishes under a biblical definition of sex and sexuality. By the way, did you know Did you know that sexual sin is one of the only sins in the Bible that God actually says to flee from, to run from? It is that tempting for all of us? One psychologist said that sexual sin is like putting duct tape on your arm. He said, if you put duct tape on your arm and you rip it off, it hurts and it takes a piece of you with it. And, and he says, you take that same duct tape and you continually put it on your arm and rip it off. Over time, the adhesiveness gets worn off as well and you begin to be desensitized to the feeling. He said, that's what sexual sin is like. The first time that you have a sexual encounter with somebody, a part of you gets ripped off and It hurts. And then over time, as you continue to do that and have multiple partners, what ends up happening is you become desensitized to it. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't make it better. It robs you of the intimacy, which is the greatest gift that God can give you. See, see what you have to understand, what you have to understand is that whenever you do any of these things or you walk in your own design, you lose the idea of true intimacy. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like when God created Adam and Eve that he messed up. It wasn't like he went into the kitchen to go cook some eggs and came back and they were having sex. He's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? It wasn't a surprise to him. See, what you have to understand is that all of this is God's design. And it is good. And it is to bring him glory. This might be one of the most important takeaways you can have. Sex and sexuality are a gift from God designed by God to be enjoyed by you and to glorify him. It's the distortions. You see, it's it's sin that has corrupted a good thing and it's confused an entire generation into thinking that sex is merely physical and that it doesn't have any spiritual ramifications like like the song, You and Me, Baby, Ain't Nothing But Mammals. Let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Man, go home and try that with your wife and come back and tell me how that goes. You know, we all know that that's not how it goes. That's not how it works. There is something deeper going on than that. And the conclusion of our escapades has led to more heartache, brokenness, shame than just about anything else in the world. So first thing I want to do is I want to, as we get into this today, I want to tell you that if this is you, and if you struggle with the shame of your past or the decision that you made, I want you to know that there is forgiveness at the cross, See, when Jesus went to the cross, he said it is finished. He said that he took all of our brokenness and all of our sin, and he took it upon himself, and that includes your sexual sins, and there's forgiveness waiting on you. Matter of fact, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, for you Bible people out there, here's, I always have to say this. Should John 8 be in the Bible? I don't know. There's a lot of debate over that. You can go have that yourself. But do most scholars believe that this is actually something that Jesus did and said? Absolutely. Well, this woman, this woman is caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery, the Bible says, and she's drug in naked before Jesus. Now, now there's two things that I think that you need to understand as I, as I talk through this. Number one is this. Men, you need to understand that sexual sin almost always disproportionately hurts women more than men. Think about this. Where's the dude? Why is she drug in naked before Jesus? Like, where's he? Why'd he get off scot-free? See, most of the time, Without being too graphic, men get in and get out, and they, really, they rarely suffer the consequences. What you need to understand, men, is that you are not alone in this, and you have a biblical mandate to protect the most vulnerable, and sometimes that are the ladies around you. Number two is this, is sexual sin exposes you in the worst kind of ways. This woman is standing literally naked in all of her shame before Jesus, but Jesus doesn't shame her, and I love this. So Jesus is standing there and all these, all these men bring and drag this woman in and, and he's writing something in the sand and, and he's waiting on him and he looks up and he says, you who are without first sin, or without sin, you cast the first stone. And, and you almost get the sense that little by little, maybe the oldest guy first drops his stone and he walks away. And little by little, they begin to walk away until there's nobody left besides her and Jesus. Now here's the irony of that statement. Jesus actually was without sin which means that he actually had the authority and the right, according to the Bible, to stone her and walk away, but he doesn't do that. And I actually love what he does. Look at what he says. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, Neither do I. Go from here and sin no more. You ever thought about that? You ever recognize the order of what he says? See, for me, if it were me and I'm Jesus, I'm standing there and I'm looking at them, if it's one of my children, I'm like, you go and sin no more, and then I'll forgive you. You clean up your mess, you don't do it again, and you know what? We're good. That's not what he says, though. You notice the order? I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. See, what's fascinating here is that Jesus, he addresses her sexuality because, because he understands that as he addresses her identity first, that's actually where the power to change comes from. He addresses her brokenness. And as she finds in herself this love and security in Jesus, it actually is what gives her the ability to change. So before we jump into the text, Again, I want to say, if you're struggling with sexual sin, sexual temptation, sexual orientation, or even your feelings about what the Bible says about these subjects, I want you to know that there is freedom in Jesus, and you can actually go before him. Y'all, all of these things are complicated because we've been taught, we've been taught that our sexuality is our identity, and that's just not true. What you have to understand, listen to me, is you're so much more than your sexuality, Oftentimes, culture tells you to reduce yourself down to one thing. But let me just tell you, when you do that, you don't become more human, you become subhuman. You're more than that. Think about it. That that might be a part of your identity, but you're a child of God. You're a son and a daughter. You're a husband or a wife. You're male or female. See, you are so much more than what, what that one thing that somebody tells you is about you. And yet, that thing might be important. I love the way that Sam Alberry said it. And if you don't know who he is, Sam Alberry is a pastor who has always had, he's always had same-sex orientation in his life. And listen what he says. He says, one of the biggest lies is that gayness or straightness is your identity. It's not at the core of who you are. It's something that is a part of a skewed sexual desire. When it's part of your identity, you think that if I cannot be fulfilled, then you will never be fulfilled. That's not true. You are a son or a daughter made in the image of God who struggles with different kinds of sexual dysfunctions. All of us have those. There is no real straightness. We are all skewed in some way. None of us desire all the right things sexually. All right. We're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 9. Okay? And as we do that, I want to try to lay out a framework And give you some principles for how to think about and act on some sexual desires, then I want to give you a couple practical takeaways that Paul would give us on the importance of this topic. And the reason why I'm doing this, I need you to hear me say this, I have four kids and culture is discipling my kids on sex and sexuality and the church is not. And I think that it's just a disservice to you. And listen, I don't like talking about this. It's a lot easier to just give you a happy, healthy, wealthy, you know, better you in 24 talk. But the reality is, is I want to make good disciples who can teach and love their kids. So first Corinthians nine, verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You might think that's a really odd place to talk about the idol of sex. Maybe. But I think that there are some principles here that if you apply them correctly, can actually address just about any area of identity. You see, Paul was the master of taking cultural context and applying it in a practical, real-world way and giving you implications that would change your life. Paul is in Corinth. He's talking to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a very athletic community. They actually hosted something called the Esmian Games that happened a year before the Olympics and a year after the Olympics. Another thing that Corinth was known for was being a very promiscuous society. Matter of fact, they said that if you wanted to use a nomenclature to be a sexual deviant meant that you were Corinthian. Anyway, Paul Paul takes the concept that's well known to the Corinthians to make an important point. You're going to see that he's going to use language that should connect in every way. The word race there in, in, in Greek is actually the word stadia, where we get the word stadium from. The word run is the word treco, where you get the word track from. Now, now, when you use the word run or treco, he's not actually talking about a track, but, but it actually means something more like progress. He's talking about, he, and here's the point, he's talking about the progress or the direction of your life actually matters. Matter of fact, write it down. Here's one of your main takeaways. Your, de, your destination determines the direction of your identity. This is what Paul is gonna get into. Every single one of us, he says, is running a race, and the question is, is what are you running towards? Are you, in your identity, are you running towards heaven, or are you living for earth? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you have an eternal perspective? Does that shape the destination and the direction of your life and your vocation, your parenting, your sexuality, or are you living for the next great escapade? Y'all, that's a great question for you to answer. Matter of fact, if you actually go back to the context, because context is key, Paul actually is talking about not just running, but compensation. Okay, at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul is going to talk about a lot of his his earning money as a pastor. And he would tell them, hey, listen, I had every right to earn money. You should have paid me. But I didn't take your money because I didn't want to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, again, here's the question you should be asking. What does money... And what does racing have to do with sexuality? Great question. Well, in, in this time, whenever the Greeks would get ready to go run a race, it said that they would strip themselves completely naked so that they would have nothing in the way of holding them back on, on, their, on their route to winning a race. It's not much different than what a marathon runner would do as they're training. They, they might give up alcohol for a couple of months in their training program. Or, or an athlete eats certain foods so that they can be healthy. See, here's the point. Did Paul have a right to compensation? Yes. Did a runner have a right to wear clothes? Yes. Paul's major point, the principle running through this that is going to apply to your identity is this. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the most beneficial thing to do. You see, He's going to use the Greek word athlete here. Listen, listen to it. Ogyzomai. I'm going to say it again. Ogyzomai. Does that sound like anything to you? Ogyzomai. It's actually where we get the English word agony from. Here's what he's saying. In order to achieve anything, and he's intentional with his words, in order to achieve anything, there's a sense in which you have to agonize or suffer in order to get what you really want. He uses that word because he understands something that you and I understand inherently within ourselves. If we don't exercise self-control or suffering, if we don't agonize over the things we really want, we're probably not going to get it. Think about a race for a second. Do whatever you want. Don't train. How do you think that's going to work out for you? Every great athlete I know, everybody that I know that really gets something that they want in life, they agonize or they suffer to get the thing that they want. And y'all, it's a lot easier not to do that. I get it. Like, it's a lot easier to eat a bowl of ice cream at 9 p.m. instead of kale chips. Because every one of us knows that kale tastes like dirt. And it comes from the devil. Like, God did not design that, okay? That was a product of the fall that accidentally mutated in the evolutionary process, and it's awful we all know that nobody wants to eat that stuff. We all know, everybody knows it's a lot easier to make functional decisions with your life. Like moving in together before you're married. It makes sense. It's expensive out there. A friend of mine was telling me the other day how much he pays for a two-bedroom apartment, and I about lost my gaskets. I get it. But the question is: is are you going to agonize ogizomai? Ladies, let me just tell you. If your man's not willing to ogizomai for you before your marriage, he ain't willing to do it after. Man, can I just tell you a secret? There's gonna be moments in time after your marriage that you're not gonna be able to have sex, like the moment after she has a baby. And if you can't wait beforehand, I promise you, you're gonna have a hard time waiting after. Ogizomai, is she worth it? See, because community will tell you, just do whatever you want. And I know some of you, I know some of you, your struggle or your agonizing, Your your stuff is way more difficult. Like, I get that. Some of you are agonizing and struggling over same-sex attraction. And, and, And you just don't feel comfortable in your own skin. Here's what I know. Every single sexual temptation of any kind, whether it be gender dysphoria dysphoria, homosexuality, premarital sex is against God's design and every single one of us has to understand and ask the question, are we willing to die to ourselves to get something better? Or, or, or let me just say it this way, what race are you running towards? Are you running toward a life of godliness and freedom or a life of independence and rebellion? Y'all, I know this stuff isn't easy, but anything worth having isn't easy. It's ogizomai. It's Every person knows this intuitively. Life is difficult. And honestly, I just want to tell you up front, it's not fair. I tell my kids that all the time to the point in which sometimes I got to correct my daughter whenever my my other daughter says something like, daddy, this happened. And Emma's like, life's just not fair. I'm like, no, you can't say that. (laughs) I can say that. You can't say that. But it's not. It's not. The cards don't always shake out the same for everybody. Like some of you are carrying some heavier stuff into your battle and you agonize over some incredibly difficult challenge and we have to be sensitive to that. Some of you are thinking right now in your head, I get that, Billy. Like I get that you're talking about all this stuff, but let me just be real with you. You're a heterosexual male and you're in a healthy relationship and you don't understand the things that I'm going through. I was born gay and I didn't ask for this or I'm single and honestly, I just wanna be married. I'm single and ready to mingle. Listen, let me just say this. That's valid. And your agony is real. But every single one of us, and this is really important, are born with sexual desires. Every one of us. And that doesn't mean that we have the right to act on those sexual desires. The question is, is what kind of life do you want to have? Like, let me just ask you, do you not think that Jesus and Paul had a completely fulfilling life in every way with joy? Let me just tell you, neither one of those brothers acted on their sexual desires. And being that Jesus was human in every way and a, hundred, a fully man, I'm sure he had them. There is a deeper intimacy that can actually fulfill you. And I, I just want to put it out there because I don't think pastors say this enough. I don't doubt that you might have been born gay. You might be like, <gasps> but if we believe in depravity and we believe that we're born into sin, all of us are born into any kind of struggle, whether that be lust or lying. I don't... If you have kids, you recognize this. I didn't teach my two-year-old how to be a sinner. They just came that way. They came out of the box, sinning, all the time. I mean, let's just be real, guys. Don't, you don't need to be afraid of that. I'm sorry that that's your struggle, and it's a really, really difficult struggle, probably more difficult than most of us ever will have to deal with. But I still believe that Jesus is more fulfilling than any sexual desire that we might have, any of us. And as you walk through and pursue a relationship with him, I believe that he can fulfill you in every single way. See, what I think is that if we die to ourselves and we live to God, we will find out that he is enough for us. See, every single one of us has to understand this really important concept. Here it is. If God doesn't complete you, nothing else will. If you need to be satisfied in anything other than God, I'm telling you that idol won't complete you anyway. Listen, culture has made an idol out of sex and sexuality and it has taught you that, that you are your sexuality. That's just a lie and it is destroying people. You are so much more than your sexuality. Stop shrinking yourself down to that. What you need to do is you need to lean into what God says about you, be satisfied in him and enjoy the, the rest of everything else that, go, that he gives you in this world. Oh, get See, you you have to agonize over these things because here's what I know. Even if you do whatever you want to do, you're not going to be satisfied anyway. Do you know how I know that? There's more depression, there's more anxiety, there's more suicide than ever before and we have more sexual freedom than we've ever had in our country. It's not working, y'all. Y'all. Let me just tell you, if you get your orders wrong, I, I did a wedding this weekend and I told, I told the bride and groom this. The reason why most people fall out of love is not because they fall out, or the reason why most people's marriages fail is not because they fall out of love, it's because they love each other too much. They make an idol out of one another. So they're constantly looking to one another to fulfill each other. As if you live in this perpetual honeymoon to where you're constantly just having sex with your spouse and it's amazing all the time. Y'all, you've been married for more than three weeks, you know that's not true. And if it's true for you, you can line up in the lobby and give everybody else counseling later. (laughs) It's not how it works. Nothing in life satisfies you other than Jesus. And if you look to anything else to do that, it will either crush you or it will crush them. That's not how it works. Listen. You have a right to do whatever you want. The U.S. government has told you you have the right to marry whoever you want. You have the right to pick whatever gender you want. But just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the most beneficial thing to do. If you go back to the context of this passage, in verse 19, Paul says, Paul, he actually is talking about sharing the gospel with different people. And he says, he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew and to the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. And I did all this so that I might win some to Christ. You know what Paul is saying? In order to achieve the singularly focused vision of the race that he is running with the life that he has in the direction of Jesus Christ, he had to lay down some rights that he had. Christian, this is hard, but you need to hear this. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you should. And some of you need to learn how to stop using that word, by the way. Like that is the American word in our vocabulary. You need to switch out the word right for the, for the word serve, because that's what the Christian life looks like. Y'all, this might be a sermon for another day. I don't know if we're ready for this, but maybe the most disappointing part of COVID to me was how many Christians I saw waving around this word right all the time. Instead, we should have been waving around the word serve and laying down our rights to serve one another. Just like you can't do whatever you want, and you can't identify as whatever you want, or you can't, you can't act on any sexual desire that you want, God has created a world, and there's an order to it. You, you, also, can't, you also can't, just because you have a right to do something, you can't do it. it it's not, that, it's not that, that that's how these things work. They don't work that way. And if you want to act that way, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up being miserable just like the rest of the world. Jesus said, I came to serve, not be served. The first will be last. Listen, here's what will happen. If you live in all your rights, you will be like a plug that has all the power in the world right at that outlet, and you'll be disconnected from its source because you'll be living in your own independence and wondering why it just don't work. Paul was a Jew, like a varsity-level Jew like the Jew of the Jews, like he sat in the Sanhedrin, he went to the best schools. There is a stink bug on my Bible. He does not have the right to be there. (laughs) That was going to distract me for the next couple minutes. Think, Think about this though. Paul Paul, being a Jew, could have done anything he wanted, but did you see what he said? He said, I laid aside my Jewishness, meaning my adherence to some of the principles that I had because I wanted to reach another group of people. Did I have the right to continue to be a Jew? Yes, but to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile so that I might win whoever I want to win with the gospel. There's a principle here. When you are a Christ follower, let me just tell you what happens. Your primary identity becomes Christian, which means that you don't lose your other identities and yet they become subject or subservient to your primary identity. Meaning this, you will always be an American, but it's no longer your primary identity. You will always be black or you will always be white because God's not colorblind. But that's not your primary identity anymore. Your primary identity is that you are a son or a daughter of the king built into a new family. Guess what? Filled with black people and white people and Middle Eastern people and brown people and, and, and all these people that are all as jacked up as we are. And because you do not have the right anymore and because you find your primary identity in Jesus, you were willing to lay aside some of your secondary and tertiary concerns to accomplish a far greater mission. You start to live inside of God's design. Let me give you one other example of this. When I said yes to Allison, however many years ago that was, on July 31st, 2011, I had to remember that. I said no to every other woman in the world. You see, for the rest of my life, although society says I have the right to do whatever I want, I laid it down to have her. Now, here's the good news. My lady ages like a fine wine. Here's the bad news. I age like a gallon of milk. (laughs) I get whiter and chunkier over time. We all have our burdens, though, don't we? All have our crosses. And I got the better end of that deal. She got the worse end of that deal. But we made a decision to lay down our rights to enjoy one another. And I'm just telling you, I love her more today than I ever have. And as I've sacrificed and I've died to myself, I've found her sweeter and more beautiful. And there's a depth of intimacy that goes far beyond the physical attractions. Because like Tim Keller says, you'll marry about 10 different people in your lifetime because you're constantly and always changing. And Hoss, you ain't as good looking as you used to be anyway. You gotta find something deeper to root yourself into. See what I'm talking about? Laying down your rights? You get the point? In order to say yes to God, you're going to have to say no to other things, whether it be sex or sexuality. It isn't going to be easy or popular, but when you do, you get the prize. Paul talks about the prize. You know what the prize is? The prize is you get your creator. By the way, you were designed for God. I don't know if you knew this or not, but you were designed for God. Not like your iPhone, who told you that it was designed in America, but made in China, like you got the old okie doke. No, you were designed for God made in his image, made for him, by him, so that you can be enjoyed with him. Ever since since sin entered the world, the same script has been playing over and over and over again that you don't need God for your ultimate happiness. But that's not true. It's not true. See, active rebellion against God, the one that Satan wants you to believe, is the same exact play that he ran with Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Did you know if you eat of that, you'll be like God? You know if you just have sex that one time, you'll be like God, independent in every way. You know what ends up happening? You end up dying death by a thousand paperclips. You end up losing your happiness because the reality is, is you already are like God. You see it? You already are like God. One of the greatest recipes for disaster in your identity is thinking that you can be anything you want to be at any time you want to be it. So let me get really practical again, and I want to address one controversial issue because if the church doesn't, nobody else will. Let's address gender fluidity for just a second. And here's again, here's why I'm doing it. If you're silent on it, somebody else is going to disciple your kids in it, and I just think that's a travesty. Culture has done a really disservice to your kids and to you. It's crushing women's sports, and honestly, children who are hurting and confused by their biological environmental changes are being told by culture that they're just gender fluid. Here's the truth. People are legitimately confused, but they're not confused by biology. They're confused by psychology. Matter of fact, Richard Dawkins, of all people, one of the leading atheists in the world and an Oxford professor in biology, listen to what he said. He said, when it comes to gender, it is unquestionable that biologically, there are only two genders, one Duke professor said it like this: However, things look on the outside. Sex is hardwired into our DNA, but since the eternal, since um, but since the external manifestation of sex does not always cohere with genetics, science has had a helpful phrase: "genetic sex." This reference. I'm sorry, this refers to whether a person has an XY or an XX chromosome. He says, genetic sex is established at conception, and it is binary. There is still no way of altering this as it is a part of our DNA. No matter what sexual reassignment surgeries a person undergoes or what hormonal supplements a person takes, they will always have the genetic sex that they did at conception. There are, he says, however, periodic mutations in which individuals get an unconventional combination of something besides XX and XY, most commonly known as XXY, which is called Klinefelter syndrome, but it is, it is extremely rare. Yo, we live in a binary world and gender is no different. God is not the God of confusion, but of order. God created us male and female, and that is a beautiful thing. Now, hear me and I say this a lot, that doesn't mean that it's not complicated and you shouldn't be sensitive. But there is a heaven and a hell. There is a right and a wrong. Obviously, the world is complicated, right? And we get that, but there are binaries. Listen, I want you to write this down. When it comes to all this stuff, there aren't contradictions to be embraced. There are tensions to be managed. And we do that through wisdom and the word. But here's a quick caution for every single Christian in this room. You remember how Paul said he becomes all things to all people so that by some way he can win some to Christ? You know what he means? It means that he was compassionate, patient, and kind. He had truth and grace, and he journeyed with people. A long time ago, I learned this. There's a massive difference between judgment and love, but it might not be what you think. Listen, you know what the difference between judgment and love is? It's not telling people they're wrong. Jesus did that all the time. What the difference is is what you do after you have that conversation. So Jesus would say, Hey, what you're doing is wrong and not good for you, but come here and let's journey and let's embrace and let's let's walk this path together. That's love. What I see most of the time is what you're doing is wrong, now get away from me. And you just stiff arm them. That's judgment. So don't be confused because society wants you to tell you that, that love is accepting of anything you want. That's not love, that's, that's actually Martin Luther King Jr. That's worse than hate, that's indifference. Imagine if my kids got home off the bus on Tuesday and daddy was like, daddy, this person told me I should try some crack cocaine. And I'm like, man, that's a great idea. I hear it's great, you should try it. Let me know how it goes. Like that, that's worse than hate, that's indifference. That's not loving to tell our kids to do whatever they want whenever they want and you know that's true. What is loving is to say, hey, that's wrong, but let's have a conversation about that and let's talk through it. Or if my kid comes home and confesses a sin that they do, if I just stiff arm him, you're out of the family. You're done. You dishonored my name. That's not loving either. That's, that's worse. It's, hey, listen, I get it. I've been there. I've done that. I've made some awful mistakes in my life too. But let me tell you how God has designed you for a better life. And let me embrace you and let's walk together. And I tell my kids this all the time. It's the same thing about God. There's nothing they could ever do to make me love them anymore, and there's nothing they've ever done to make me love them any less because my love for them is not dependent upon what they do, but on, on what Jesus has done. Listen, this, is, this confusion is real, and people are hurting. And if I could just caution you, Christian, on anything is you don't have to be a jerk about it. Like You should invite into relationship, and you should walk with truth, because Satan is the author of lies, but Jesus is trying to show you that people are hurting, and the way that we change the world is not by stiff-arming people, but by loving them and walking alongside of them and journeying with them. All right, go back to verse 24, and let me show you something really quickly. Paul would say, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. You notice that he uses that word run twice. And I've already told you, he's talking about a direction that you're going in. He's saying that all of us in life are running a race and we're running towards something. Now, for many of you, you think that you're running away from something, but no matter how you slice it, you are running towards something. That, and that something that you run towards in your life will determine the life that you live. So let me pause for a moment. Let me tell you the thing that most of you are functionally running towards most of you are functionally running towards independence from god being the captain of your own ship and that's why the bible talks about identity more than just about anything and by the way when, it, when in the new testament when it talks about identity it uses this greek word epitomia it, 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 literally two different words put together to mean epi or epic tomia meaning desire it, what the Bible says is that your desires, when they're misplaced or they're epic, or they're giving too much attention, become ultimate desires, and those things tend to destroy you and kill you. They don't fulfill you. That's what happens in our sexual desires. It's not that our sexual desires are wrong, they just become too strong, and then we want them whenever we want them more than we want God. I heard one scholar say that your sexual desires at their height become what make you a functional atheist. It's the moment in time at night, at 11 o'clock at night, whenever you're alone, that you begin to rebel against all your theology. It's an epic desire. Whether it be keeping up with the Joneses or sex, the prize that you get when you fall trapped to your epic desire is not freedom. It's actually slavery. And it begins to kill you. Listen to how Psalm 115 says it. It says their idols are silver and gold. Now, you may think that they are archaic and you're different, but you're not. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Here it is. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Do you know what every single one of those idols have in common? They are all dead. Which means those who make them become like them. You become dead. See, that's the point. Whatever you look to to fulfill you will overpromise and underdeliver and you will become like them. You will become dead, dead inside. Whether it be money or success or sexual desires, none of those things fulfill you. They only suck more out of you. That's why every single time that you have a sexual encounter, you you feel dirty three minutes later and you find yourself doing it again like a drug the next day. Because the prize that you look for is not found in that. Like Blaise Pascal said, all of us have this God-shaped hole in our heart. And if you try to fulfill it in anything else, it will become like a vacuum that will suck the life out of you. So Paul, to land this plane, is going to give you a couple quick, practical things that will focus a life and an identity on freedom. Listen to it. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You see them? There's two of them. Self-control and vision. Let's talk about those really quickly. Self-control. I think one of the greatest myths with self-control is that you can become more self-controlled. You know self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, Which means, watch this, if you want more self control in your life, you stop pursuing self control and you start pursuing Jesus and you will become more self controlled. You gotta get the orders right love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self control. They're fruits, which means you gotta get the roots right and then you will produce the right stuff. See, what you need if you wanna have self control is you need to stop trying to will yourself to freedom. That's not how it works. Anybody in here ever had a a porn addiction? Guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to will yourself out of a porn addiction, right? Don't give me an amen because we don't need to know who you are. If you want freedom, it's not found in the pursuit of self-control. It's found in the pursuit of a relationship with Jesus. As you submit yourself to God's will, you will become more like him. And as you become more like him, what you will find is that God has a better plan for your life, and then that will give you direction. Instead, many of you are like the athlete that is beating the air. You ever try to beat the air? It's exhausting, and it doesn't work. You can posture yourself into submission, which will give you vision. Let me give you a picture of what vision is. Vision is painting a picture of the future That shapes the way you live now. That's what Paul is talking about. Do you you know what you want to be? Are you living towards that end? Are you wandering around aimlessly, hoping that you will end up in the right place? Y'all, too many Christians that I know just think that you fall into the Christian life. Like, oh, one day I just woke up one day and I decided I was going to be a Christian. Like, here's how I hear it all the time. And when I'm done and I get older, I'll, I'll start walking with Jesus. I'll put that stuff aside later. Here's here's what I want to say. What if there isn't a later? Number two is, do you realize how much you're missing out on now? God's not the God of just the future. He wants to change your life now. God's not just a God about tomorrow. He wants to meet you in your now and give you freedom now. Now, I wish somebody would have told me this truth. Listen, again, I don't hear pastors say this, but let me just tell you this. All I ever heard growing up is, don't sin because it ain't fun. And I was sitting in the pew being like, you obviously ain't doing it right. It is fun. Don't be dumb. Of course it's fun. But it's going to kill you. It's not satisfying. You know how I know that? I'm preaching from experience. It left me as a hollow shell every single time. Made my life worse. I hated myself, hated my, the people around me, wanted to die. That's, that's real. You do your thing. You'll have fun for about three minutes, and then you will just become emptier and emptier and emptier, and God wants something more for you than that. You know, wisdom is not learning from your mistakes. Wisdom is trying to learn from somebody else's so that you don't have to make them. you there's a better way. It's God's way. It's his design for your life. When you understand that, you get something really important. God's design isn't found in the doing. It's found in the being. That's why you're human beings, not human doings. And did you know at the cross, Jesus didn't say try harder. He said, it is finished. My favorite phrase is to telestai. It is finished. Jesus didn't say, be ashamed. He said, no, I've adopted you into my family to give you a new identity. Like I know some of you have an immense amount of shame from your past, but but I did too. And what I can tell you is there is freedom. I have a healthy relationship with my wife and my children, and there's so much joy because I found my joy in Jesus and my identity in him. See, Jesus didn't say, try harder and clean up your mess. No, he said, bring your mess to me and I will give you rest. The reality is that Jesus' grace didn't come with preconditions. It came with a declaration, forgiven, free, new. I'm telling you, if it's the God who created you that's able to forgive you, and if he's able to forgive you, you can forgive yourself. That's what makes the gospel so different. He knows everything about you, naked and exposed, and he still chooses you you can forgive yourself. See, there's a lot of us in an identity crisis, especially when it comes to sex and sexuality, because it's a crisis of our past. But I just want to let you know that you don't have to live in your past. You need to have a vision for your future that shapes your now. God wants you to be changed now. See, the difference is, is if you live in your past You will live into that reality, but if you set the destination for your future on something better, it will determine your today. And it all starts with the gospel. If I could get you to memorize one passage of scripture and just plead with you to do it, it's 2 Corinthians 5 21. Put it on the screen. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me break this down for you. For our sake, This means that the gospel is for you. Like, Do you know why Jesus stepped off of his throne in heaven? You. Do you know what the angels are jealous of? The relationship that you have with them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that... You would have life everlasting for our sake. He, meaning God the Father, gave him, meaning Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, meaning perfect in every single way, to become or to absorb your sin by living your perfect life, dying your death, raising from the dead, and uniting you back to him, which means that he can no longer punish you for any of your sins because he already punished Jesus instead of you, so that in him you will become the righteousness of God. I want to end. We're going to, we're going to sing this song, but let me, let me say these lyrics over you. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, my cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what highs and lows, what depth of peace, what fears are stilled when striving cease. My comforter, My all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again and stands in victory. Since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home here in the power of Christ's stand. That is the offer that Jesus makes to all of us. When we put him first and when the aim of our life is not ourselves, you actually have a desire that is fulfilled in him that allows you to enjoy everything else. What I want to do is I just want to stand and sing, if you'll stand with me, that declaration together. And as you sing it, I want to challenge you to make this your prayer, your worship. Not just a song we sing because we sing songs, but this is your moment between you and God, confession of love, of surrender, of declaration of the gospel. So why don't you sing with us?